Lord Jesus, mm, you are awesome. We love you. We praise you. We lift our souls up to you. And God, we thank you for this time of worship. Thank you for this gathering of believers here at Dutch Fork Middle School. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. All God's people said, amen. amen. You may have a seat. This morning we are looking at a major subject, huge subject. Big thoughts for big minds for big hearts. This stretches the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know, <clears throat> I've done a lot of studies on Calvary and the resurrection, and I've really studied in depth um, what happened on that last week. But one of the things that intrigues me the most is one of the things that the Bible doesn't answer. And it's this, what was it like on that Saturday? If you know, Jesus and his disciples went into the upper room and had the Last Supper on a Thursday evening. And that's where he gives them that famous discourse from John chapter 14 through John chapter 18. He speaks to his disciples. And then Thursday night, he gets arrested. He goes through the night imprisoned. The next morning... Um, stands before Pilate, and on Friday, we call it Good Friday, he's crucified. Now, you got to remember, the disciples, the disciples thought they had found their king. He was going to rule and reign, and they were going to sit to his left and to his right. They were at an all-time high. And on that Friday, their hopes their dreams, everything they believed in was crushed. They were perplexed. They were in a state of shock to see their Messiah, the one who's bringing the kingdom into Israel, to be nailed to a cross. That was a form of, 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 of torture and the death penalty during the first century. The Persians had... Uh, developed the concept of crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it for the ultimate torture. Here's the, and here's the thing that the, the scripture doesn't answer that I always wonder about. After he was nailed to a cross and he died on the cross on Friday and he was laid in the tomb, what was it like on that Saturday? What was it like on that Saturday? They were perplexed. They were in a state of shock. They didn't know. A bad dream, a nightmare had just happened. And they're all scared and they're huddled in a room. They're crying. They're, they're in a state of shock and they don't know what they're going to do. And then early on that Sunday morning before the sun rises, Mary Magdalene and them go to the tomb. And what happens? He is risen from the dead. And the event that took place that morning, that first resurrection morning, has transformed our world has transformed our world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You take the resurrection away, you have no Christianity. It, it, it takes away everything. Everything is built on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything is built. See, many people had come along. The, re the resurrection is what defines Jesus. Many people had come along and said, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. I'm the, come follow me, come follow me. But what happened? They came, they lived, they died, and they stayed dead. But Jesus came, 
And after he died on the cross, he rose from the grave. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, uh, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's declaration to the entire planet that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amazing, amazing study. So turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's read the first six verses. And um, dive into the subject of the resurrection. And this passage deals, this chapter deals with Christ's resurrection, and it connects it with our resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you receive, which, you, which also you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scripture. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Lord, thank you for your word. As we dive into this now, this verse-by-verse study, um, speak to our hearts and encourage us by your word. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Amen. One of the foundations of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus. Everything rests on the resurrection. The resurrection validates his ministry, his life. It validates the, his death on the cross. It, it, it validates all of Scripture. Because the main subject of the entire Bible is what? Jesus. It's Jesus. Why is this important? Why is the resurrection of Jesus important? Number one, it proves this, that Jesus is who he says he is. It proves that he is who he says he is. Number two, it sealed his work of salvation. It sealed his work of salvation for you. He died on the cross to be our propitiation, to pay the price for our sins, to being the sacrificial lamb of God, so that we can be forgiven of our sin and to seal it and to show us the way to eternal life. He rose from the grave. The, the, the resurrection is proof. It is the evidence that there's life beyond the grave. That there's life beyond the grave. We need to remember that. How long are we going to be gone for when we leave this life? Forever. For eternity. And his resurrection from the dead proves beyond a, beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is an eternity that awaits every single one of us. And if we will repent and put our trust in Christ, we won't perish on Judgment Day, but we'll spend eternity with Him in heaven on Judgment Day. The, 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 um, the resurrection, it brings hope. It brings hope. I remember last year, had the last two years, had the painful experience of, uh, of burying my grandma and grandpa. And if you know anything about me, if you know me any amount of time, they were my world. They, they so influenced me. They so um, prayed for me and preached to me and witnessed to me and guided me and directed me in my life. But watching there in Augusta, Georgia, I'm at the funeral, watching their caskets lower on the ground, there was this sense of hurt. There was a sense of pain. But as I'm watching it, I'm thinking about Jesus' words where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, Though he shall die, yet shall he live. His resurrection gave me the hope that I will see them again. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost a child. And that's painful and it 
hurts. But through his resurrection and our trust and our faith in him, we have confidence and hope not only that we'll have eternal life, but that we'll see our loved ones again this past on. Paul dealt with many issues at the Corinthian church. And uh, he dealt with lawsuits. He dealt with sexual immorality. He dealt with the, the abuse of spiritual gifts. And now he's going to deal and correct them on the resurrection. So let's take a look at it. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 1. He says, now I make known to you, brethren. i got to stop right there. I love this phrase. He says, now I make known to you, brethren. This is a term of endearment. He's, the Apostle Paul is fixing to deal with probably their greatest error. And it is their, 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 their lack of faith and belief in the resurrection of the body. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 is why he wrote this chapter. He says, now if Christ is preaching his, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say there is no resurrection? Now, the resurrection is a serious issue. And he could have blasted them and rebuked them. But what does he say? He says, now I make known to you, brother. It's a term of endearment. He's going to correct them in a spirit of love because he knows what's going on. And you have to know what's going on in the culture here. The the Corinthians um, were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and Plato. And and, and they believed in a thing called dualism. Dualism means everything that is spiritual is good. Everything that is physical is bad. They believed in, in, in dualism. They believed that the spirit was entombed by the body. And moving on into eternity was pure and perfect and good, and everything spiritual is good, but everything in the world is evil. So they, they, they questioned it. Christianity and philosophy cannot be mixed. They're mixing your Christianity with worldly philosophies, whether it's Plato, dualism, uh, atheism, whatever isms are out there, it's like mixing oil and water. It messes people up in their mind. The Bible stands alone when it comes to our faith. The Bible stands alone. It is the Word of God. In Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul says um, to them, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on human tradition rather than on Christ. It's a dangerous thing to mix philosophy with Christianity. And I, but I love the way Paul does this. He calls them brethren, and he's going to address them kindly and correct them. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. We all, most of us know it. If you confess through your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's an essential component to our faith and our belief in order for us to be saved. We're staking our eternity on this one event, the resurrection. So now what Paul's going to do here, he's going to present three evidences, three evidences for the resurrection in these, first, in these early verses here. So let's look at the first evidence for the resurrection. The first evidence is our testimony. Can, let's pick it up at verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the first thing he's going to do, giving the evidence for the resurrection, and he's going to point them to their testimony. And it starts with what? The gospel. The gospel. Uh, Now make known to you, brothers, the gospel. What is the gospel? 
The gospel is simply, Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. And notice the, the, the word gospel, what does it mean? It means good news. It means good news. That good news means it brings uh, forgiveness of sin. It brings uh, reconciliation. It brings new life. It, it saves us from an eternity in hell and gives us an eternity in heaven. But he gives us a new life. We're reconciled. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's the great exchange. When we, we repent and put our trust in Christ, Christ gives us his righteousness. Like his coat, he puts on us his righteousness, and he takes our filthy rags, and he puts it on Christ at the cross. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, no matter where you're at in life, no matter whether you've been raised in a Christian home, praise the Lord, and you've known Christ all your life, or you're a wretched sinner like me and got saved when you were 22 years old, or you come to Christ late in life, you have a testimony. Whether you receive Christ in your dying breaths or early in your life, the thief on the cross, whether you do it late in life or you do it beginning in your life, you can have a testimony. But that testimony consists of parts. So let's look at them. Paul's going to give us three, uh, give us three parts of the testimony there in verse 1. He says, uh, the gospel which I preached to you. What does it mean when it, when it says, hey, I preached to you? It means this, simply. It means the gospel has to be delivered. The gospel has to be delivered. It has to be taken to people. It has to be presented um, to them. Question for you this morning. How was it presented to you? How was it presented to you? Well, my mom and dad raised me in a Christian home, and they introduced me to Christ at an early age, and I've known him ever since then. Or, or, or maybe you've come to Christ recently. Life was a train wreck, and things were going south, and you said, oh, God, I need you. But we all have a, t a testimony. How was it delivered to you? I remember... Um, before I got saved, I was living right here in Irmo, South Carolina. I was the heathen of heathens, doing everything imaginable that a sinner does. And God graciously removed me from Irmo, put me in the military. I came home on leave. I came home that weekend. I wanted to party with my friends right here in Irmo. Had the 12-pack on ice in the trunk. And my grandma calls me, and she says, David, you got to come to church with me. I'm like, no, Grandma, I, I'm up here in Columbia. She's down in Augusta, Georgia. And, uh, but you can't say no to Grandma, right? <laughs> you can't say no to Grandma. So, so, so Sunday afternoon, I went down to Augusta, Georgia. And she said, I gave her hugs and kisses and love. I was getting ready to leave for a six-month deployment. And um, she said, David, I want you to go to church with me tonight. I was like, no, Grandma, I got things I got to do tonight. But again, you can't say no to Grandma. So anyway, she takes me to Crawford Avenue, Church of God, downtown Augusta on a Sunday night service. And I sit through the service patiently, listening to the preacher preach. And all I had my mind on was what I was going to do when I got back here to Irmo. And so the pre preacher closes with the sermon. It affects me, but I'm, you know, I'm kind of like just pushing it off and pushing it away. And then um, my Grandma says, we got to go to the altar. we got to pray for you. I was like, come on, Grandma. So anyway, she takes me down to the altar. And I just remember all these hands laid on me. Some people were praying in tongues, and, and it was, they were praying for me. 
And I remember as soon as they got done praying for me, I bolted. I got out of Dodge really quick and came back to Irma. Went about my business. The next six months, God began dealing with my heart as I was on a deployment in the Navy. And then in April of 1992, I remember everything that preacher said. I was in Naples, Italy at the pier in Naples, Italy. I called my grandma and I said, Grandma, can you send me some tapes from your preacher? Crawford Avenue Church of God, now called New Hope Church of God in Augusta. And uh, she had them jokers FedEx across the ocean. And I, I went the rest of that deployment listening to that preacher, listening to what he had to say, and it touched my heart. And I realized how desperate I was. He was preaching to me. I got back from my deployment in April of 92-ish, whatever, and uh, I was heading out with my friends to the clubs in Virginia Beach. And I remember going down um, Virginia Beach Boulevard, and this guy hands me a gospel track. I'm like, really? Really? But I stuck it in my back pocket. And for the next couple months, I was living on the USS Eisenhower, an aircraft carrier, and I would lift up my coffin rack. You know, I've been in the military. You know, I'd lift up the coffin rack, and I always had that gospel track right there. And it, always, it was God preaching to me. And, and, and then finally, I, I got up one Sunday morning. I went to a church, and I went to the altar, and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But the gospel, my point is, it says, Paul says, I preach to you. The gospel has to be delivered to you. It, ha- it has to come to us. And then he says, uh, continuing in verse 1, which also you received. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. We have to receive the gospel. We have to cry out to him, whether it's like the thief on the cross, and we say, Lord, remember me in your kingdom. Or it's a long, drawn-out prayer, Oh God, I need you. But, in that receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it has two elements. It has two elements, repentance and faith. Some of them come quickly, some of them come right away. But in that process, in that process, even in that, in that moment, in that season, there's an element of repentance and faith when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm wretched, I'm undone, and I need you. I need you. And we put our trust in him. And then it says, in which you also stand. This, my friend, is the gospel. It says, in which you stand. What does that mean? To stand means to not be moved, to not be conformed to the patterns of this world, to care about people, to live a life that's centered around Jesus. To live a life that's centered around Jesus. That's what it means to to stand. It means you continue in your walk with Christ. You don't just come to the altar, come to church, get fire insurance, and then go about your daily life. But you continue to grow. And you continue to move forward in your relationship with him. So that's the gospel. The gospel is preached to us, we receive it, and we stand it. But look at the warning in verse 2. Very important. There's a warning in in verse 2. It says, by which you also are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. What is that word, what is that phrase, believe in vain? It means it has no effect on your life. You believe with your head, but not with your heart. We call it religion. We call it religion. I'm meeting with a gentleman this week, but he's committing adultery on his wife, actively being unfaithful to his wife. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet with him this week. And the thing about it is, he considers himself a Christian. 
He considers, him, he, he, he can, he considers himself a Christian, and he's being continually faithful. And I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to be like, listen, bro, that's not what the Word teaches. The Word teaches that there's a change in our life. And you need to, maybe there's an element missing here. Maybe repentance is missing. Maybe faith is missing. But you need to come to a place and repent of that lifestyle. If you're a follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus don't live like that. And you're going to have to, you got to change. And I'm going to challenge him this week when I meet with him that you can't. You can't do it. He is believing in vain. He's got a mental belief. He's got a head belief. But there's no heart change. And it's showing by the way um, he's living his life. And we can't be that way. So the first evidence that the Apostle Paul gives us here in these opening, this opening two verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first evidence of the resurrection is a changed heart. Is a changed heart, a transformed life. A transformed life. Let's look at the second evidence. This second evidence is the, uh, is the testimony of Scripture. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you of first importance that also, excuse me, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The key phrase there is he died on the cross for our sins, what, according to Scripture, and he was raised from the dead according to Scripture. Jesus' death and resurrection was the fulfillment of Scripture. you got to remember, when this was written, they didn't have a New Testament. What did they have? What were the, what were the Corinthians looking at? They were looking at the Old Testament. Well, my friend, the Old Testament contains the Gospel. It contains the Gospel. Go study Psalms, uh, Psalms 22, where it gives graphic details of the crucifixion, of Jesus' death. Psalms 22 opens up with this. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And throughout the whole entire Psalms, it gives graphic details of the cross and what happened at Calvary. I want to read to you, that was King David in Psalms 22. Uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, which the Corinthian church had before them, says, uh, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who is Isaiah talking about? We're looking back and we know Jesus. Speaking of the resurrection, King David said in Psalm 16.10, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus' death and resurrection, we're talking about the resurrection, and we're moving in, we're, we're zoning in on the resurrection, but Jesus, but you need to understand this, Jesus' death and resurrection was no accident. It was no afterthought. It was the plan that God had before the foundation of the world. And the gospel was there, even in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, you know, many people will say, and don't get me wrong, don't don't misunderstand me when I say this. The Bible is a wonderful manual for life. It is, a, it is our guide. It instructs us. It teaches us. It is our manual for how we live our life. But that's not the ultimate purpose of the Bible. The ultimate purpose of the Bible is to testify to Jesus. 
all books of the Bible testify to Jesus from Genesis to, um, to Revelation. So the second evidence that Paul gives us here is the testimony of Scripture. Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible. The Bible that you have in your hands is completely trustworthy in everything it says. Every, and, and everything it says about Jesus and all of his words, everything in it is completely trustworthy. And it testifies, it points to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection, let me, let me, the resurrection of Jesus and his bodily resurrection is what separates him from all the other world religious leaders. Again, so there's multiple things that separate Christianity from all other religions. One is, is the Christian faith is based on the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. So it's based on him. It's not based on us. It's not based on anything you do. Whereas all other world religions, they're based on what the people do. How do you, what do you do? You earn your way. It's works-based. Not so with Christianity. It's faith-based. And it's faith-based in, in trusting in Christ. But going back to my thought, the resurrection separates him from all other world leaders. What happened on June, you might know what happened on June 8th, 632 A.D.? A man by the name of Muhammad, at age 61, June, oh, let me get this right, on June 8th, 632 A.D., at the age of 61, a man by the name of Muhammad, he died. He died of poisoning in the lap laying with his, some scholars believe she was as young as nine, some believe she was early as 15, nine to 15 year old wife. He died of poisoning and he passed away. And he's buried today in Medina, Saudi Arabia. So when people make that trip to Mecca, they're paying homage to a gravesite that has that religious leader in there. He, he's, he's there. He's buried. 483 B.C., at the age of 80, who passed away? Buddha. Buddha. In, over in uh, Sri Lanka, 483 B.C., at the age of 80, Buddha died of natural causes. He was cremated. They kept one piece of him. Do you know that? There's, 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 there's a piece of Buddha in existence today. His tooth. In, 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 a, in a city, in, in, um, in Sri Lanka today, there is a building called the Temple of the Tooth. And, and, and they have the Temple of the Tooth, and within that temple, they have his tooth because his, his remains were cremated. So the founder of that religion, it's well documented, has died, is dead. But there was one, Jesus of Nazareth, who came, who lived, who died, and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He, he bodily rose from the grave. And as I said a while ago, Romans 1.4, it was God's declaration to the world that this is the Son of God because he's risen from the dead. The t I, as a matter of fact, I've been, to, I've been to, um, to Jerusalem. You know, people spend these um, thousands and thousands of dollars to go on a trip. And don't get me wrong, I would spend double that 
if I had a chance, and I, and I do want to go. But I got to go all the way to um, Jerusalem for $35. Uh, I was in the Navy. I was in the Navy <laughs> on the carrier Eisenhower. We pulled into uh, Haifa, Israel, and they all, the USO always gives sailors a good deal. So we spent 35 bucks and uh, got a one-day tour of Jerusalem. But one of the places we went to is, is what they call the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is, is believed to have been the site of Calvary. Now, not far from it, you know, within a stone's throw is the garden tomb, but it's right in that area where um, the resurrection and his death took place. And guess what? He's still not there. <laughs> He's not there. He's risen. That's the foundation of our faith, guys. That's the foundation of our faith. And, it's, and, it's the, and, and going back to our evidences, it's the testimony of Scripture. It's the testimony of Scripture that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's an historical fact, and it separates him from all other world religions. So let's look at the, um, the third evidence. Third evidence is, uh, we call it the testimony of eyewitnesses. Look at verse 5. It says, And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. But then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now why does the Apostle Paul write into the church at Corinth? Why does he give these list of names? What's the purpose? What's the point of him laying out these, these, these people and the 500 witnesses and Peter? He did that because in Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15, Numbers 35.30, Matthew 18.16, John 8.17, and 2 Corinthians 13.1 all establish the fact that in order, for, in order for something to be verified, true, and correct, there has to be how many witnesses? Two. Two, at least two or three witnesses. How many witnesses are there? 500. Over 500 witnesses. Two the res to the resurrection of Jesus. And in a Jewish court of law, facts had to be established by two or three witnesses. He gives them 500. Let's look at them for a second. Verse 5 says, He appeared to Cephas, Peter. Oh, man. What was that meeting like? Some, some believe that... Um, there was one or Jesus had one or two appearances to Peter. One is possibly early on that resurrection morning. The other one was on the beach when Peter called them from the shore. But think about Peter's state of mind. Going back to my original thought at the beginning of my sermon, what was it like on that Saturday? Peter had denied his master. It crushed him. He was devastated. And Jesus makes it a point to go to Peter, if not at least once, possibly twice. Why? To reinstate him, to reassure him of his love, and that his failure 
was going to turn for the glory, was going to turn for the glory of God. What had that, what would that have been like? On, on the shores, he said, he told Peter, he says, do you love me? He repeats it three times. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. But Peter, in Christ's darkest hour, Peter was the ultimate failure. But look, Christ goes to him and restores him. Down at verse 8, the Apostle Paul starts talking about himself. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. What he's saying there is basically, hey, Paul was saying, I'm not, I was not one of the 12 disciples. Matter of fact, I hated the church. I hated Christians. I was persecuting them. And then on the road to Damascus, he had that blinding light, had that conversion. And, and, and through that eyewitness, he became an apostle to the Gentiles to spread the, to spread the gospel. In verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. There it is, as I said a while ago, because I persecuted the church of God. Even people that hate Christianity, even people that hate the Lord, God, by the supernatural work of his Holy Spirit, has the ability to change their hearts. And he gave us Paul as an example. Who was there to witness Stephen Stoning, give him full wholeheartedly approval? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Some people would say today, that's not fair. I didn't get to see it. I'm not an eyewitness. Has, has anybody here seen or witnessed Jesus' resurrection from the dead? No. But my friend, we have something even better than these 500 um, witnesses. We have, through the eyes of faith and the testimony of Scripture, we have a front row seat to everything that Jesus did in his life and ministry. Through the eyes of faith, as we read the scriptures and we read the gospels, we have a front row seat. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say we, we probably know five times as much about Jesus' life and ministry than those in the early church when the New Testament canon had not been written yet. They were based solely on the Old Testament scriptures and the preachers, uh, Peter and Paul and James, we have more than they do. We have more than they do. Now, some within the church, as, 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 as the Apostle Paul was led to write this letter, there were some people, I don't think they had a, they weren't denying Christ's resurrection. They may have been, but morally, they were, they're, they're, they were confused about the bodily resurrection of, of saints. So they, there may have been some confusion on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but you remember in the very, he opens a chapter with calling them brethren. In other words, insinuate, hey, brothers in Christ. But he, he's, he's now going to deal with um, what happens when you deny the resurrection. Look at verse 12. Um, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do, some, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, they were influenced by philosophy. They were influenced by Greek culture, specifically dualism. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God 
that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But we have hoped in Christ in this life. We are of all men to be pitied. If there, notice what he said there. If there is no, if there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ has not even been raised. Our preaching, our witness, according to verse 14, is in vain. It's useless. Pack it up and go home. Verse 15, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God. We're calling God, calling God a liar. Verse 17, it says there, your faith is worthless, useless, has no meaning, no purpose. Verse 17 also says, you're still in your sins. Our sins aren't forgiven if there is no bodily resurrection. Verse 18, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's what happens. That's what life is boiled down to if there is no resurrection from the dead. And for a person, for a, for a believer, for, for anybody, any human being, in this, anybody in existence, to deny the bodily, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is one to call God a liar. It's false teaching. It's heresy. It's someone that, that won't be in heaven because that's, that's where our anchor, that's where our anchor is held, is in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's where I hope, it's where we drive our stake in the ground. It's what we witness to. It's what keeps me going in life serving the Lord. Knowing that my Lord and Savior has died on the cross for my sins. He's rose from the grave. He's, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in eternity. I'm just following him. Knowing that he rose from the grave, I know that there's life beyond the grave. And I know that one day I will see him face to face. And I know one day I will see my grandma and my grandpa and my loved ones and those I can't wait to see. My grandpa, he loved fishing. And I know where he's at right now. The scripture talks about there's a river in heaven. And I bet he's sitting on the side of that river fishing. And I'm looking forward to seeing him again and our loved ones again. Let's look at verse 19 and 20. It says, verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men the most pitied. There's places in this world where Christianity is so despised. You Christians, you believe in someone that lived 2,000 years ago. Are you a fool? What's up with that? What? How can you believe in this Bible that was written 2,000 years ago, and you trust in this Jesus of Nazareth who walked the streets of Galilee and Jerusalem that lived 2,000 years ago. Why? Because the testimony of God, the Bible, and history points to his resurrection from the dead. And the testimony that's living within us that he has changed my life. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amen?
between verses 19 and 20, actually verse 20, I'm reading verse 20, we'll probably go over it again next week, but now the Apostle Paul is making the shift and he's going to dive, he's going to dive deep into the subject of the resurrection. But it says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who, are, who fall asleep. Paul's saying in verse 20, he's saying, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is fact, it's truth, and it's invincible. And what's our favorite Bible verse we all like to quote, John 14, 6? When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's truth, it's fact, it's invincible. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is witnessed by the disciples, by the 500 witnesses, by the testimony of God's word, and by 2,000 years of him changing life. He is risen. He is risen indeed, and he's risen today. My question for you this morning as we close is this. Is the evidence of his resurrection in your life? Has he raised you to new life? Do you understand the hope we have in him? It will totally transform you. It will renew your heart. It will renew your mind. It will take you through the difficult times in life. When we lose a loved one or we're going through challenging times, it's because of his resurrection. It gives us hope. And not only does it give us hope for our loved ones and for our family that we're going to see them again, but also the resurrection. It gives us hope in this life. You know, the resurrection is for today. The resurrection is for today. He changes hearts. He changes mind. We're going to close with a song. I believe it's called Resurrecting. But ask God. Say, God, come into my life more. Fill me afresh. Fill me anew. Bring this new resurrecting life to my heart. Amen?